Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by Pete Strzok, former Deputy Assistant Director of the Counterintelligence Division of the FBI and author of the book Compromised, Counterintelligence and the Threat of Donald J. Trump. During his time with the FBI, Pete led the investigation into Hillary Clinton's emails, led the investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 elections, and briefly worked on Robert Mueller's special counsel investigation into any links or coordination between Donald Trump's campaign and the Russian government. So, Pete, thanks for joining me today. Reed, it's great to be here. So, what I've started calling the orange albatross of America is Donald J. Trump, former president, if his threats are to be believed, potentially wants to be the future president. So, given your experience going back to 2017, what was it specifically, or what was the specific thing that concerned you? I mean, obviously, I think everybody knows the kind of person he is, the kind of creature he is. But from your perch as a counterintelligence specialist, as he started to come into office, was there anything that you personally had a concern about based on things that you guys were monitoring or available to see in 2016 and as he proceeded through office? You know, what we saw prior to 17, certainly in 16, when he was running in the primaries and then became the nominee of the Republican Party, it was clear that he showed a variety of counterintelligence vulnerabilities. And, you know, the easiest way to think about that, there is no one thing that motivates somebody that kind of opens them up to either coercion or just manipulation. But when you look at Trump kind of across the board, money was an extraordinary motivator. I mean, there was clearly grift going on, you know, not only with him and the family, but people surrounding him that you saw trying to transfer their access and presence in the campaign into their own profit. You know, certainly he demonstrated an ego and an attraction to sort of authoritarian figures that opened him up to manipulation by folks, whether it's Vladimir Putin or Duterte or, you know, any number of folks that he expressed admiration for. You know, I'm not a psychologist, so I don't want to pretend to diagnose him, but certainly there was a very thin-skinned, ego-driven nature that anybody who demonstrated those sort of behaviors like he did opens themselves up to manipulation. And, you know, finally, everybody was through the steel material quite focused on whether or not the P-tape existed or not. And I, it's neither here nor there. I mean, obviously, the point being that through his behaviors, were there things there that he did that would open himself up to blackmail? You know, and people focused on just Russia. But the big takeaway that I think is evident now is it wasn't just Russia. And looking back over presidential administrations, back to our founding times, there was more compromising behavior from this administration to any number of foreign nations. Certainly Russia is there, but if you look at what Mike Flynn did with regard to Turkey, if you look at what Tom Barrick was recently charged with with regard to the UAE, if you look at people like Broidy and you know the things with Malaysia and the PRC, if you look at you know some of the alleged deals with Saudi Arabia and nuclear technology, 
the list of countries just goes on and on and on. So it wasn't a Russia concern, although that was certainly there. But what's evident now is it was this broad, just foreign concern, period. And that, again, from a counterintelligence perspective, is simply unprecedented, at least in modern times. Well, and even before he took office, weren't there stories or reports that surfaced that Jared Kushner had actually traveled to the Russian embassy to make a phone call back to Moscow? I mean, that seems to me to be so outlandish as to be something that only Hollywood could come up with. But that was pre-White House. They hadn't even taken office yet. Right. You know, it's one thing if you say, hey, I want a back channel because I want to be able to discuss with you in the event of a crisis or in a particularly sensitive negotiation. I want to have some way to do that in a quiet, trusted way. But it's an entirely different thing when you're looking at a hostile nation and you're showing up and you're going to their embassy, allegedly. Because one, it's sort of absurd. And certainly in the view, in the eyes of the Russians who are watching this go on and they're sizing up who's coming in, they're sizing up their sophistication, trying to figure out what makes them tick. And you set yourself up from jump, you're not even in office yet, and you're kind of pulling these rank amateur sort of moves that are clearly helpful to a country as sophisticated as Russia to understand what they're dealing with and not in a positive way. In your experience as a counterintelligence agent, is there a higher level walk-in, as you would call it, that ever existed than the president-elect's son-in-law <laughs> prior to taking office? I mean, I know there's analysts and there's guys that have codes and there's other things, but like literally someone who's going to sit 25 feet from the Oval Office, they had to be like, what is going on here? Yeah. And again, and that's just one country's perspective. Again, if you look on our side, you know, we're looking at everything, but you've got, you know, the incoming national security advisor is, you know, taking editorials and placing them that are largely drafted or influenced by the government of Turkey. He's sitting there in rooms where they're having discussions about, you know, whether or not to snatch Gulen off the streets of America to render him back to Turkey. You've got just across the board, you got Paul Manafort, who's the campaign manager, passing detailed confidential campaign information to somebody who now the Senate is labeled not only an agent, but an actual officer of the Russian intelligence services. So you're just going down the line, person after person after person has all these foreign entanglements that we have never seen that broad a scope of foreign entanglement with another administration. And I again, there might be somebody who knows early American history who could look in the first two, three presidential administrations and look at their links to the French or to the British and might make an argument that those were as great a threat. But I don't know that there has been anything like this. So with a lot of the people around him, Trump has always attracted a certain caliber of person, I'll call them, because you have to be willing to be around him you have to be willing to do the things that he wants you to do. And by definition, then that means that your scruples are either minor or non-existent. So you have someone like a Kushner or any of the family members or any of the senior staff members who are babes in the woods, maybe, when it comes to real politics, when it comes to geopolitics, when it comes to intelligence. Flynn was a career intelligence officer. Like he knew what he was doing sitting in the West Wing was not OK, and he did it anyway. So it sort of ran the gamut from people too inexperienced or stupid to know better to people who absolutely knew better and just did it anyway. Right. I think that's right. And I would say more of the former than the latter. But I think in general, you're right. When you look at the major parties, they have people who tend to enter into presidential administrations and get from the beginning, have jobs of increasing responsibility where you learn the ropes, where you understand what sort of the norms of behavior and 
the rules of the road and you get promoted in that. In one administration, you're working at a lower level and the next administration moving up. But when it came to Trump, anybody respectable, you know, they had already thrown in their hat with Ted Cruz or Marco Rubio or Kasich or whoever else. And so what's left on the table for Trump to draw, you get people who saying their inexperience is probably a very generous characterization. But, <laughs> you know, when along with that comes not only an inability to do a competent job, but it also comes with a certain amount of vulnerability that makes, you know, when you walk into a room and you're being targeted by a very sophisticated intelligence service like the Russians, like the Chinese, you're an easy mark. And that, I think, was we saw that play out in all this various behavior of people who ended up getting charged and prosecuted. Well, a couple of things. One, I was a Schedule C appointee in the first George W. Bush term, 2001. And for the listeners who don't know, Schedule C is like you worked on the campaign, you want to come to Washington, they give you a job. There's like 4,500 of them sort of spread throughout the federal government agencies. And like this is, and I'm going to put this in air quotes, although you can't see me, the reward for your good work. Sometimes like me, I was an advanced man, right? I got to go over the country. I got to go over the world. Some people end up, you know, reading the Wall Street Journal all day. Some people have more substantive jobs. Some of them really are, I guess, the last vestiges of the spoils system, such as it was. But, you know, to your point, even when Trump took office, there was neither the ability nor apparently the desire to really fill out the government as we would consider it because it just didn't care. Right. I mean, if you don't care about governing, if you don't have any inkling to understand how it works in the first place, then you don't really need anybody to work there anyway. I think that's absolutely right. And what's concerning is my experience prior to the Trump administration, both of the parties, the Democrats and Republicans, had a fairly rigorous internal vetting process by which, to your point about the Schedule C employees, even before those people are brought on board, there's a little bit of due diligence. There is internal research done to make sure somebody's legitimate and doesn't have anything that's going to hop out of their closet and cause embarrassment or problems or you know open them up for coercion. One that didn't exist at all with Trump, but what worries me tremendously is I don't see any sort of acknowledgement or understanding on the part of the Republican Party, certainly, that, yeah, this was a problem and we need to fix it because whoever the Republican nominee is in 2024, we want to make sure that the people going into the government aren't going to bring us the same set of problems that the Trump administration did. And I'm speaking just from a counterintelligence perspective. And then, you know, on the contrary, you got C. Bannon talking about, you know, he wants his list of hundreds or thousands of what do you call them, shock troops where, you know, they're ready to go and they've got all these people lined up. Well, you know, Steve Bannon is not going out and doing deep research into, you know, are these people open to any sort of compromise by a Middle Eastern nation or South Asian nation or anybody else around the world? He just wants somebody who's going to come in and follow orders and, you know, burn the place to the ground. You know, that was the one thing I was going to bring up. So for our listeners, Bannon has this infamous townhouse in Washington, D.C., but the meeting that Pete was referring to occurred at a place called the Capitol Hill Club, which I've been to since I was the age of six, right? My dad worked on Capitol Hill. He worked next door at the NRCC and then at the RNC. So it's where all the Republicans, members of Congress, politicians, they do fundraisers. And like most of this occurs literally underground, folks. Like it's literally in the basement of the place. And he had this group of people, future Republican administration, whatever, called them shock troops. He wants to place these people in, I guess, ostensibly a second Trump administration or in another wacky Republican administration to, quote unquote, deconstruct the administrative state. Now, Pete, as you know, when he says that, although he said, like, we should get the post office to work the way we want it to or the FDA to work the way we want it to. When you start using language like that, it's basically like, as you said, burn the place to the ground. And as Bannon is a self-avowed Leninist, he does want to burn whatever exists to the ground and I guess rebuild it in whatever psychotropic image he might have. 
But that's pretty scary because it feels like the people who were there, Bannon even as for as short a time as he was, went through and sort of tried to pull out as much circuitry from within the administrative part of government, which does most of the work as it should, as quickly as they could because they didn't care. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And to varying degrees, institutions were able to withstand that. But stepping back and looking now, I don't think any department or organization within the government was immune to the effects of that. And, you know, I had hoped that the FBI would be able to withstand it. But very early on, from whether it was the firing of Director Comey to, you know, the firing of Andy McCabe, me, other people who were, you know, moved, there was clearly a signal sent that if you were going to be doing things that relate to either the president or his enemies or rather people that he like, that you do so at your own peril. And it wasn't just limited to the FBI. So if you look at people who testified in the first impeachment trial in State Department or the NSC or wherever they happened to be, they were targeted. And the specific reason, I think, you know, A, was probably just Trump having a tantrum, but B, there was a deliberate intent to chill that sort of behavior. What really worries me is I think that people understood now, Bannon and the other sort of strategists, when they look at what happened in December and January, they understand that, you know, the fancy word, the course of power of the state, you know, the people like the Department of Defense, the FBI, the law enforcement, the things that allow the executive to exert its will through force, that they didn't have that, right? That they looked around and when push came to shove, they knew that they had an independent FBI. You had General Milley who was maintaining a solid line with regard to the Department of Defense that they're going to follow the law. So I think there was absolutely a realization that for our plan to have succeeded, it would have been much more effective if we had more loyalists in those departments who carry force with them. And that lesson, I'm certain, was not lost. And so if and when the second Trump administration comes, I think everybody ought to be looking very carefully at who is placed at the Department of Defense, at the FBI, at you know places like DHS and folks where you have supervision over physical force. So like what was most, well, there were many things that were concerning last year about, well, Trump's four years in office, but in particular was, for example, to your point about the use of state power, whether or not one, it was in Washington, D.C. with the famous, you know, stroll across Pennsylvania Avenue, or when DHS deployed federal officers, I guess, into a place like Portland, where there was only ever going to be one outcome, which was going to be violence. And, you know, our perspective was political, which was they did this because they want the video of federal officers or federal forces, whatever they were, squaring off against whether or not it was Antifa, BLM, whoever it was. They wanted that to show chaos, right? Like, this is what we're fighting. But a lot of these people, you know, your former federal law enforcement officer, a lot of these officers don't have name tags, don't have the agency with which they serve or to whom they serve. That really scared me because that was, if not over the line, certainly right on the line of this could get ugly in a really big hurry. I think that's right. There are a couple of components to that. One is that federal law enforcement, with a few exceptions, aren't trained in things like crowd control and civil disturbances. You know, local police forces do that. Certain elements of the National Guard and the military do that. But I remember reading about Bureau of Prisons personnel who are being deployed. Now, what, you know, Bureau of Prisons, they do a good job in most cases of administering our prison system, but that is a very specific sort of law enforcement activity that doesn't convey to, if you've got a bunch of peaceful protesters with a couple of violent ones, that is absolutely non-analogous to running a prison. Or if you have a 
riot in a prison or anything else. You know, the, the worry is that you bring somebody in and their job requires them to have a hammer and they're hammering nails and you put them in a different spot where there's a leaky pipe, but they've got a hammer and they're used to hammering nails. So they're going to go after the goddamn pipe and, you know, beat on it and hope that it stops. And so you're putting people who don't have the training into a role that they're not accustomed to. And I was deeply worried and concerned as well. I'm, I think we're all very fortunate that there was not worse violence, worse outcomes than what occurred over the summer. You know, at the time, Chad Wolf was the acting Secretary of Homeland Security because, of course, nobody got Senate confirmed at that point, right? He was unqualified for the job. He'd said some crazy ass things. Everybody knew even Republicans were never going to confirm this guy. But Pete, that's the other piece too about the governance piece of this, which is they were willing to just say, throw him in the office. Nobody's ever going to care. Republican Senate's not going to do anything about it. Ultimately, a Democratic senator or whatever is not going to do anything about it, which has this deleterious effect on like how the government actually works, which is if people aren't accountable to the other branch, the advising consent branch of the United States Senate or the, you know, that piece of the Constitution, then they're not accountable to anybody. That's right. And that was across the board. I mean, look at the DNI. You had knuckleheads like, you know, Rick Grinnell and, and John Ratcliffe who are absolutely unqualified in any way, shape or form for a job that by statute requires certain qualifications and experience within the U.S. intelligence community. And you can just move that on to, you know, putting at the end days, moving Cash Patel over into a senior role at the Department of Defense. What ought to concern people now is not the horror of looking back and how bad it was and could have been, and it was worse than we knew. What ought to concern people right now is that that, that was a blueprint, that is a first run that a next administration, when we get to 2024, like, well, why bother having anybody who's Senate confirmed? Why not the model of having all these sort of actings who are just simply loyalists without potentially any qualification whatsoever worked? And there's no reason, there's nothing that has happened since this administration, this Congress, to lead me to believe that there's any reform, let alone law, you know, underway to change another administration from doing exactly the same thing. And it worked then, and I would expect to see more of the same if Trump is elected back in office. So we have January 6th, where we all know what happened. And my dad called it sort of like watching a tsunami on television. At first, you're looking at it, and you know, it's like you'd be standing on the beach if all the water disappeared. And then the water's coming toward you like, what the hell is going on? And then, you know, that horror dawns on you. And then you just sort of sit there mouth agape, still trying to process because for us as Americans, we have never had to experience that. I mean, not in any real living history or living memory and certainly not live on television as we saw it. So now let's fast forward as you and I were talking a little bit about before we got on, you know, so far, I don't know how many of the folks who actually stormed the Capitol that day have been arrested, charged. Some have pled. I don't even know if anybody's been found guilty yet. But so far, it only seems to be active participants that are being prosecuted. No one else in any leadership level, if such a thing is possible in this, has been held to account. So my first question on this is, do you believe in your experience, both as a counterintelligence officer and a former federal law enforcement officer, is there anybody up the food chain you think that they're going to get for this? I think so. Clearly, the goal is that at this level, there are a couple of conspiracies that have been charged by far and away. And I mean, I think the recent count is over 760 people who have been charged by far and away. The bulk of those folks are just 
knuckleheads who got swept up in the moment, found themselves suddenly inside the Capitol, probably looking around saying, how the hell did we get here? I had no idea we'd be able to get here because, you know, there's an utterly, you know, not quite an open door, but pretty close. Those make up the bulk of the numbers, but those aren't really the ones that are, I think, of anybody's concern, certainly on the law enforcement side. What your law enforcement, I imagine, is doing right now, you're looking to the people who were coordinating it, who were planning in advance, who were funding the various, you know, people who were brought in. Again, not the key leaders, but just to provide bodies and energy and muscle in the crowd, but to start figuring out who was coordinating this, who was paying for it, and then also to the extent that it's apparent now that this wasn't just a protest that was sicked upon the Capitol. You had Eastman writing legal memorandums about how they might stop or change the electoral results and targeting that to, you know, I read something saying, you know, Senator Lee was one of the targets of that memorandum to try and get him and others to see if they would support it in the Senate. And they had plenty of support on the congressional side. And then you had a sort of multifaceted approach to try and maintain power. And so at the highest level, I think everybody would love to know, okay, was there something where people within the White House, either Trump or those immediately around him, were engaged in a winning conspiracy? And I don't know that it ever, I don't know if that happened, first of all, and to get there in an investigation is extraordinarily hard. But I think beneath that, there is a level at which people who were organizing this, who were planning it in advance, who had an idea that it might be more than simply a protest, that it is reasonable to get there. And of course, the challenge is, you build investigations up. You start at the ground level, whether if you're working an organized crime case, you start with the soldiers and you build your way up to the capos and you build your way up to the head of the family if you can. The challenge with this is that ground up approach, you're building a foundation and that foundation has to be solid. So every one of these cases has to be done right. And the tendency is to say, oh, this is you know a dog shit case and I'll just work and get it done. But the point being that every one of these cases matter. And if you're trying to use them to create a narrative of a bigger criminal conspiracy or more serious crime, all of that has to come together. And that takes a lot of work. And so I think we will see more higher level folks, um, certainly in the leadership of some of these organizations. I think, you know, the question in my mind are certainly folks like Enrique Tario, Mike Flynn, Lindell, all these folks who are kind of running around. But the people who were there on the fourth and the fifth and riling up the crowd and did they do anything beyond simply vigorous over the top First Amendment expression of political belief? Did anything there cross into a conspiracy where they broke the law? So I think there will be more. I don't think it is going to be for somebody looking to say, well, the Department of Justice is going to charge this all the way to the top and find a deep conspiracy. I don't think that's going to happen. I think that's too complex to do without somebody at a very high level and cooperating and trying to do an after-the-fact reconstruction of that, particularly with this. I don't think people necessarily appreciate the complexity that the First Amendment injects into all of this activity, that you can have hateful speech. You can say speech talking about people in terms of violence, but there is a broad protection under the First Amendment to engage in a lot of that activity. And while there's certainly hateful behavior, there's a tough, tough hurdle to overcome to get into the criminal realm in some of this activity. So let's take this John Eastman memo in which he basically outlines how a delay could be executed in the counting of the electoral votes where, you know, we're spending so much time on something that has largely been through our 240-some-year history a ceremonial event. Even when there was an objection, it was ceremonial. 
It was to prove a point. I object to this because, and I want to make some broader political, civil rights, whatever it is, right? You know, issue with how our elections are conducted, et cetera, et cetera. These were actual objections to allowing the votes to be counted on behalf of Joe Biden so that he could subsequently take the presidency. But John Eastman comes in with this memo. Now, the Claremont Institute, where he's a fellow, which is probably the leading proprietor of white ethno-nationalist thought in the country at this moment, you know, is saying, oh, no, 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 he didn't really mean it. He didn't really mean it. But it sure as heck, you know, he goes and he says, you could go back to these legislatures and say, ask for a seven to 10 day delay in the counting of these votes. Like we all know what would happen in that seven to 10 days and none of it would be good. Is that sedition? I don't know if it is. I mean, I think looking at some of the activity of the protesters and going in, I think you could make an argument that by the letter of the law that people who are, you know, wittingly breaking into Congress to impede a function and activity of the government, in this case, the certification of the election, it does constitute sedition. Again, both I'm neither an attorney nor have I taken a close non-attorney look at the law as applies to what he does. What worries me is, I mean, I figured it was the Washington Post or the New York Times. Somebody had written an editorial talking about the Electoral Count Act that created a lot of the process by which the, you know, the votes are opened up. And it was you know, designed to think there was a contentious election in whatever, 1887. I'm going to get the dates wrong. But a lot of the things that Eastman was proposing were taking advantage of these loopholes in that law. And that what we really need to do if we want to tighten this up, if we want to prevent more nonsense or, or shenanigans like this in the future, we really need to revise it. But I mean, I see no legislative priority whatsoever on the Hill. I think maybe there might have been a congressman or a woman or two who are going to introduce some legislation to try and tighten it up. But to the point of the thing that held the most in the last administration was the judicial branch. The executive branch was hopelessly lost. The legislative branch, you know, certainly when it was either controlled by the Republicans or there was not a sufficient check on Trump's activity, what did hold is the judiciary. And you see that now, you know, whether it's like Dominion and all these folks in the voting systems are going after using the court system and charges of defamation to right some of the wrongs. So I think the point to all that is if you want to create protections going into the future, the best way in many instances are by passing and reforming laws that are going to allow the judiciary to maintain that bulwark against a lot of the bad acts that occurred in the last administration. Because I think that was the best, strongest protection we had about some of the abuses and continues to be. So two questions I want to ask you about Congress. One is to push back a little bit is you can pass all the laws you want, but if the executive branch is unwilling to follow that law and there is no one within the executive branch who is willing to stand up and say no more. And if the judiciary says you can't do that and the executive branch says too bad, they do it anyway, we're left back to those damaged institutions. For sure. I think there were many instances where you look at as bad as it was, what did seem in all these tales of the, you know, the books of people suddenly deciding that they're going to clear their conscience in mid-late 2021 instead of prior to the second impeachment when it would make a difference. There are these stories about people certainly in the White House Counsel's Office and others in DOJ saying, you know, President Trump, you can't do that. It's against the law. And that that did ultimately hold some sway over him. So, you know, it wasn't perfect, but I think there was some motive force there. What is staggering to me Talking about Congress is I grew up in a Republican family and, you know, it was always, 
you know, baseball, apple pie, and God were good, and the communists were bad, and national security needed to be strong. And it was pretty straightforward. And, you know, now we've gotten to a place, what astounds me is that, you know, party has risen above country. I never thought I would see that. And it's manifesting itself in, you know, the willingness of, you know, certain senators and even, you know, all kinds of congressmen to take what they know is probably Russian disinformation coming from the Ukraine, whether it's about, you know, Hunter Biden's laptop or God knows what crazy conspiracy theory Rudy had. And people saying, you know, the Ron Johnsons and Charles Grassley's of the world essentially saying, I don't necessarily care where it comes from. Even if everybody's kind of saying it's coming from the Russian intelligence services, I don't care because it might be true and it is a political weapon that might be used to our advantage. And I didn't ever think I'd see the day where the Republican Party would, outside of Trump, I mean, you know, people who've been senators for decades and decades in some cases, choosing to give the time of day to information and people who are clearly acting at the behest and carrying information from not only adversaries, but hostile foreign nations. I don't understand how fast that sellout occurred. No, listen, I mean, we wrote an op-ed right before Election Day last year in the context of if Trump loses, what will many of our friends, colleagues, former friends, former colleagues do? And we said, which side of the river are you going to be on? Are you going to be on the side of the river with democracy and fair elections? You're going to cross the river with Trump. And it was like elephants stampeding across the goddamn river. They just went. All of them. Wasn't even like, oh, well, just let him, you know, have his temper tantrum. Let him get it out of the way. Or we have to worry about Georgia so we can't get him pissed off before Georgia. Like all of these things were just ridiculous. And as you know, if someone acts badly and continues to act badly and there is no sanction, then they will continue to act badly. So let me turn to people acting badly, which is. The Select Committee on January 6th, our own Rick Wilson got some feathers ruffled last week when he said that he was hearing from sources within the committee that there was not a lot of conviction within the committee to really enforce these subpoenas, to really hold people to account for not appearing, whether or not it was Mark Meadows, the former chief of staff, obviously Steve Bannon, as we've mentioned, this crazy Ali Alexander who appears, who claims to be one of the architects of the January 6th stuff, Dan Scavino, who I think he was a former caddy and is now Donald Trump's social media mouthpiece, to which, you know, a very congressional statement came out, said, you know, we will quickly consider, you know, blah, 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 blah. Here's my concern is that as we record this on Wednesday, tomorrow, I mean, this might be the day it drops or the next day, Steve Bannon's going to go on his podcast and he's probably going to hold up that subpoena and he's going to say, I'm not coming. You come and get me. Come and get me. My question to you is, do you believe that the 1-6 committee will hold him in contempt? And if they do, will they refer it to the DOJ? And if the DOJ does, will they perp walk him into the E. Barrett Prettyman federal courthouse to stand before a judge and explain himself? I think they need to do a credible job of conveying the willingness to do that. I think if they were able to do that, then Bannon is going to capitulate. I mean, he'll make noise and find himself a fig leaf to go in and talk, but it won't get to the point of having to go out with the marshals or whoever it is and put the cuffs on him and bring him in. But he's got to believe that they're going to do that. And I don't, I mean, look, was it Karen McDougal who got thrown in? Somebody got thrown into jail for contempt for hundreds of days. I mean, for God's sake, you know, and I remember when I was still with the FBI 
And House Judiciary was threatening me with a subpoena. And I'm like, no, we'll come in voluntarily. But the point was, you know, that was there and talking about it and thinking about it. It's like, okay, well, on the one hand, as a public servant, my duty is to go in. If Congress, whatever their motivation, however partisan they are, if you want to hear my whatever I have to say and testify, I'm going to go do it. Because as a public servant, that's your damn duty to be accountable to the American people. Well, that's not going to matter to Scavino or Bannon or Patel or all these other knuckleheads. But then the second component of that is also that threat of knowing that, yeah, they're going to issue a subpoena out of the Republican HJC. They're going to find, if we say go screw, that they're going to find somebody in DOJ, a Republican, you know, Bill Barr or whoever. I don't know if he was in yet or if it was Jeff Sessions still or Whitaker in the middle. But they're going to find a willing partner who would be willing to go out and enforce that through contempt proceedings. And so on the one hand, you've got one side of the equation that's willing to do those things and everybody understands it. On the other side, just the fact that there's some ambiguity about whether or not this is a credible threat being brandished, it's unfortunate. But I think if you do that with one person, you're going to find everybody else falling in line. And I hope they're willing to do it with one because at the end of the day, there's no bluster. Nobody wants to go to jail. Steve Bannon doesn't want to go to jail. None of these folks want to go to like DC central cell block or wherever it is they'd be held. I mean, it's a miserable, terrible place for, in my opinion, soft people like they are. So you put a little teeth to one person and it'll, you know, folks won't fall in the line. And I hope, again, at the end of the day, this is about Congress. Politicized is whether or not you think it is or isn't. The job of Congress is to sit there and have public servants come in, in this case, and account for themselves and say what they did. Yeah, you might get yelled at. Yeah, it might be a spectacle. Yeah, everybody might throw up their hands and say, oh, this is terrible. What has Congress become? But at the end of the day, it's the system. And so honor that. And as you know, the Republicans had no problem doing that with the Benghazi stuff for like three years. Like they just kept going because to them, they understood that in this particular case, as wrong as it was, it was performative. And that's what they were looking for. They wanted it to be damaging to Democrats. They specifically wanted it to be damaging to Hillary Clinton. And they were willing to use the power they had to do that. Was that wrong? It was wrong. This, on the other hand, this committee's in the right. They have not only the legal, the political, but the moral high ground. And that's for me as someone who maybe we spend too much time on a moral mountain, but it seems to me to be a no-brainer. Right. Whenever your brand is doing the right thing in the day-to-day playing of the game, that inevitably tends to hurt you because if the other side is willing to do underhanded things or push the rules and the boundaries, that's going to hurt what you're trying to do. But I don't think, to your point, I don't think there's some sort of three-dimensional chess where they're saying, well, if we drag this out long enough, we bring it to a crescendo in the middle of the midterm elections. And my sense is that's not going on. I promise you that that is not happening. (laughs) So the question is, okay, is there, if they are just trying to get to the truth, if this is a deliberate process, you know, one, is there a plan? You know, it may not be with the urgency or the timetable we like, but there's a good plan in place and they're going to get there come hell or high water and just give it time. But my concern is, Everything in Washington goes more slowly than you anticipate, whether that's in the executive branch, whether it's in Congress, wherever the case may be. And I am really concerned that in the midterm elections, that whatever ability you have to move and walk towards answers, that you better have a firm plan to get that done by the time the people, if there is a change in the House or or the Senate flips, you better have a plan to get to the end point before that. I am not encouraged that exists. I could be wrong, and I have every faith in the competence of the people working on the commission, but I just, it seems quiet, and the tendency and the fear is always to say, well, quiet means there's not stuff going on. I hope I'm wrong. 
Well, you and us and so many other people. So let's talk a little bit in our last few minutes about the future. So regardless of what this January 6th committee does, what are some of the things, not only politically, but nationally, that concern you in the next year, 18 months? Like, if you had to say these are the two or three things that are sort of really concerning me right now, what would those be? The view of the legitimacy of our elected officials by the populace. I started in the FBI in, in 96, and I worked domestic terrorism as an analyst. And this was on the heels of the Oklahoma City bombing. And a lot of the mistrust of the government, which is, you know, that is a long, I mean, that's been around for hundreds of years. And so this isn't the kind of deep thread beneath the American character about mistrust of governance is not anything new. But I think when you see the drumbeat, the looking back about the legitimacy of 2020, I mean, some of it's a grievance about changing that, but it's also laying a set of expectations of behavior and belief going forward to the next, certainly the midterm elections, but the next presidential election. And I'm very concerned that you have a huge chunk of the population that believes that President Biden is an illegitimate president. And I think that you're seeing the groundwork being laid that when their candidate is not elected in 2022 or 2024, that people become fed up with a system that they view as illegitimate and they're no longer willing to simply stand by and they feel that all this talk of violence is suddenly legitimized and appropriate and you know take it upon themselves in a not necessarily coordinated way, but in a kind of individualized, self-radicalized, uncoordinated way. That's bad, but it's particularly bad because if you look at an investigative agency like an FBI, if you have a group of people conspiring, you have a much better chance of detecting that and investigating it. Like the people we saw who were threatening Governor Whitmer in Michigan. Exactly. Exactly. But if you have individuals just one off or two off, a Timothy McVeigh and a Terry Nichols, who the two of them decide to get together and do something outside of the context of an organizational structure or a hierarchy, really becomes much more difficult to see ahead of time. And so, you know, I'm particularly worried about political violence, you know, first and foremost. As a person who spent the bulk of my career in counterintelligence, I'm very worried about how foreign nations saw what they could do with regard to the Trump administration, understand the way that the rules of the road worked and not to the U.S.'s national security advantage. And they'll be well prepared in the event of another administration to jump right in where they left off. And again, to the point of party over country, if you don't have a White House that cares about a foreign intelligence threat, if you don't have a Congress that really, at least one party, doesn't seem to care about a foreign intelligence threat, I think we're facing potential trouble on the foreign front as well. And to bring that nexus back to January 6th, before I let you go, a friend of mine is Egyptian, and he texted me and he said, are you okay? And I said, I don't know that I am. And he said, I understand. He said, we're used to stuff like this. You all aren't. And he said the biggest concern he had, and he has, is that once political violence enters the lexicon, it's very difficult to get it back out. Now, you know, I mean, we had, obviously, you mentioned Oklahoma City. The 60s, I think, were probably rife with political violence. We've always had it in some form, but never to the point that we certainly saw, I think, on January 6th. So that's one. And then two is, you know, reading the new Bob Woodward and Bob Costa book that you know, and this is one thing that I don't think gets enough attention. Too much of the attention, I think, so far on the General Milley story talking to his Chinese counterpart has been focused on the conversation and that Milley was doing that. I think the bulk of the conversation should be 
that the Chinese were scared to death that Trump was going to go nuts and do something ridiculous and stupid and dangerous. To me, that's the story, was that even the Chinese were like, what the hell is going to happen here? And they probably weren't alone. Yeah, that's right. And I think what's lost in a lot of this discussion is there was a power to the moral authority of the United States in the international community. You know, for decades and decades and decades, the U.S. was the shining light on the hill of Western democratic ideals. You know, one person, one vote that you can say what you want, worship who you want, love who you want, that these were the things that when the world looked, when your friend in Egypt looked to say what should and could a democracy look like, they looked to the United States and they say, that's it. Despite all its issues, it is the land truly of vibrant democracy. And we have lost that moral standing. People around the world who are looking to the United States don't look at us the way they used to look. Now, if you're an isolationist, maybe you don't care at all, but I care. I think there's a reason that so many people go into government or are proud to be Americans is because of what we stand for. I think it's increasingly unclear if you ask somebody, well, you're proud to be an American. Yes, I am. Well, what does that mean? And I think that getting an answer to what that means is increasingly muddled, and that's really discouraging. You can lose that very quickly, and gaining it back takes inordinately greater time to achieve, and I'm worried about that. Infamous speaker, longtime House Speaker Sam Raybird said, any jackass can kick a barn down. It takes a carpenter to build one. Well, listen, Pete, thank you for joining me today. Before we let you go, where can our listeners find you online? Twitter is at Pete Strzok. And then certainly, you know, if you want to hear about kind of my take on 2016 and a career in counterintelligence, uh, you know, I wrote a book about a year ago called Compromise that lays out hopefully in an interesting manner my experience over my career. Again, everyone, the book is Compromised, Counterintelligence and the Threat of Donald J. Trump, available at Amazon or your fine local bookseller. As always, everyone, you can find me online at Reed Galen on Twitter. Pete, thanks again for joining me. And everyone, we'll see you next time. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, as well as We're Speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on the Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter pages. And we'd love you to join us for our newest show, Lunch with Lincoln, which airs every Friday at noon Eastern on our YouTube channel. For the Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. See you on the next episode.